0: Before we start this episode, just a really quick mention from the people who pay our bills, HubSpot. So here's the question, ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast?
1: Sometimes actually, yeah, I'm thinking something like Lucky Charms, Candy Floss, some kind of soup
0: something horny well actually we don't know but what we do know is that 20 percent of unicorn startups are using hubspot and for good reason
1: yes hubspot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales software and support plus they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale and with the hubspot for startups program you can save big on your first year
0: to see if you're eligible to save on hubspot visit hubspot.com startups
2: If your why is that we want to make a bunch of money as a company, that's okay, but just own that, right? Because that's that why will drive your behavior. In our case, it's a little bit bigger than we, we truly want to help consumers build wealth and get rid of debt.
1: Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne, I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al, I'm a business owner. And we are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. We are, uh, remember
0: last week when Leanne said that she was under the weather? Well, I've got it now. Boo. Boo. So, um... So I'm sorry, you're going to have to put up. So, Leanne's going to be leading a lot of this podcast, even though I did the interview with Kevin and he was awesome. Um, so, you'll have to put up with uh, my snotty nose and croaky voice. Hopefully, it makes me sound a little sexier.
1: Oh, it's very sexy, darling.
0: Hello. <laughs>
1: <laughs> very, very white. Yes, yeah, so today we have another founder episode for you. Uh, we're talking to the awesome Kevin Dalstrom, who is founder and CEO of FinTech Swell. But we're, we're doing a little bit of a different spin on this one, aren't we, Al?
0: Yeah, um, I first came across Kevin on Twitter. Um, I followed him. I've been following him for maybe about a year or something. And he seems to split his post between, um, ridiculous rock climbs that he'll send a picture of him like half a mile up a cliff face, a cliff face with nothing but a piece of string. Um, and then really solid leadership advice and stories. And so that's why I, I, I reached out to him, reached out to him. I'm not that guy. That's why I DM'd him. And I said, you slid hey. into
1: his DMs. I said, oh my
0: God. What's, what's happened <laughs> to me? Um, And I basically said, look, dude, we need to talk to you because you sound like a really interesting guy. And he really was, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he really, really was. So if you haven't heard of Kevin, Kevin is a founder and CEO of Swell, a disruptive fintech that is on a mission to reduce credit card debt by a billion dollars. He spent his career in financial services and has served as chief marketing officer for Elevate, Mr. Cooper and Central Pacific Bank. He's also a rock climber. He's a father. He's probably the fittest 50 year old we've ever met and also the nicest guy on Twitter, which is probably why he's got about 40,000 followers. We are very excited to welcome Kevin to the podcast.
0: So what started off really as kind of a founder story, which is one we do once a month. Um, just led into really all about leadership and leading fearlessly. And of course, we're using the fearless as the analogy of climbing up a rock face. Um and so Leanne's put this together and she's she's discovered that Kevin's basically got seven essential lessons to overcome obstacles and inspire others. We will go into that in just a second, but before that, it's our favorite time of the week. It's the news roundup.
1: Be the jingle.
0: Okay, so we've got a new segment for our this little portion of the show which is called Truth or Lie, dead on brand there. Loving it. (laughs) And the whole idea is that I will say to Leanne, is this truth? Is this psychological business I'm going to be talking about? Is it a truth or is it a lie? And then Leanne will explain which one it is. So are you okay with that, Lee? Yeah, go for it. Lovely. All right. So the first question, well, this week's Truth or Lie is all about, have you ever seen that like quite cheesy series called Lie to Me? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that as a psychologist, you're a bit like, hmm, meh. Eh. Yeah, eh. yeah, it's fun. And it's basically, if you've not seen it, it's a, an English guy and a Carmen Gary, you're going to be shouting it if you remember his name. Um, and he's basically the main protagonist and he can read facial signals and he can read micro expressions. So he will say, he, he will work with the FBI. Unexplicably, every single week he works with the FBI uh, to solve this kind of mystery by basically looking at someone and going, "Are they lying? Yes, they are because they twitched their left eye for half a millisecond. Is this a load of bollocks, Leah? Is this a truth? Can do microexpressions exist? Can people actually tell if you're lying by looking at your looking at your face? Is it truth or is it a lie?
1: Well, expressions are a part of body language. And I've always been led to believe that when it comes to body language, we're pretty rubbish at reading it. And it always makes me smile when people say, I'm so good at reading body language. It's like, are you really? Um, Unless it's really obvious, you know, like defensive people might have crumpled up their limbs, their arms and legs crossed. um, Or you may see a very alpha male beating his chest. I have actually seen that once in a meeting. It was cringeworthy. Um, But in terms of using body language or facial expressions alone to detect truth or lies I'm not so sure that is a thing generally speaking again we can identify emotions you know typically if somebody is happy or sad or angry but truth, I don't know. But to be fair, this isn't my my area of expertise. Uh, so I actually called in some psychology backup, Al, in the nice. shape of Ryan Sherman, Chief Science Officer at Hogan Assessment Systems, a friend of the show, I think we can say at this point.
0: I'm curious, what kind of light do you have to shine in the sky for Ryan to come, to come like flying? You know, like in Batman. Yeah. You have the, the bat. What would you have to do for It's
1: it? like, you know, the Science of Personality podcast that, that Ryan... Yeah. Host, I think it's got like a little brain in the middle. See, so you like just brain. project that in the sky, yeah.
0: and Ryan, Ryan will just drop in and It just, just
1: appears. Yeah, I love it. it's like it's more like Beetlejuice. All right, like you say, like personality, 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 and then he don't say it now. So, that... Ryan, how are you? Sorry,
0: <laughs> back to bed, mate. It's, it's, it's midnight for you. It's
1: early there.
0: Anyway, sorry after my interjection, carry on.
1: So yeah, so I asked Ryan, can we use facial expressions? and or body language to detect if somebody is lying. Can psychologists serve as a human lie detector test? Here's Ryan.
3: But for the most part, many people can recognize when somebody's happy or when somebody's angry or when somebody's sad just by their facial expression. And so from that part of it is that I think that that's that's all true psychology. And in terms of the lie stuff, there's actually quite a bit of research on lie detection and and detecting deception from a whole bunch of things. Uh, there's some really classic studies where they took like FBI investigators and they took regular police officers and they just took like normal, ordinary citizens and they had them all like watch video clips of people who were either lying or not. Um, and in this case, they, they, they set it up so that half of the time they were seeing a lie, half of the time they weren't. And what they found out was that the federal investigators were much better at catching liars who were lying. And the reason they were better at it is because they assumed everyone was lying. So they weren't better at Right. So they also were calling people liars who weren't lying, too. So they actually weren't more accurate, right? But they're better at catching liars. So if you just say everybody's lying, then you're going to catch all the liars. But of course, you're going to accuse a lot of people of lying who aren't. So it turns out that, um, at least in that sort of sense, like that there's no, doesn't seem to be any sort of trained skill, at least at that level, in detecting lies. Uh,
1: so no, <laughs> lie. It's
3: a lie. <laughs> So, basically, I should
0: stop watching this show and move on to something like House, where it's a bit more realistic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Touche. See, that's the thing. I'm sure there's many, like, doctors and, like, medical doctors and surgeons that can't watch things mm. like House or Grey's Anastomy. I don't know. I'd continue to in- indulge love. at the end of the day. I think what Ryan is making the point of, it's taking two areas of, of psychology that are, are fact-based, are true, are a thing, and just combining them in a way that may not necessarily be accurate, but is very entertaining.
0: Interesting. What else you got, Lee?
1: Um, so I came across a very clickbaity, angry headline this week. <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell you the headline: Boomers are more hardworking than Gen Z, according to a survey in Australia.
0: Amen. you're these bloody Gen Zs—they don't know they're born.
1: <laughs> they don't.
0: I'm not Boomer, by the way. I'm Gen X. Just in case anyone's listening and think I'm Boomer.
1: Yeah, but well, according to this survey, apparently there may be some truth in it. So, first of all, hello to our Aussie listeners. We know we have quite a few down under, so thank you very much for your support. And we'd love to hear your views on this as well. So, an article in Indy 100 shared the results of a recent survey undertaken by Immigration to Australia. They asked more than 1,000 people in the country to evaluate their post-COVID work habits in a bid to understand how the pandemic has affected how people approach employment. Now, apparently, one third of people between the ages of 18 and 30, so we're talking very much Gen Z and young millennials there, they said they are more relaxed about their jobs because unemployment rates in the country have dipped. Meanwhile, 77% said they have no intention of going back to working in the same way they did before lockdowns, uh, which, of course, made remote and hybrid work possible. On the other side, Gen X and boomers, people born between 1955 and 1980, they were working just as hard as before the pandemic and nearly 90% said they had a strong work ethic. So, of course, part of the motivation for younger generations to adopt a more casual approach casual approach is to avoid burnout i think when we think about this logically we are now working much longer into our lives so that makes sense we're looking about sustainability rather than necessarily intensity uh so perhaps the flip argument could be rather than them not being uh rather than being work shy gen z and millennials are simply looking for ways to work smarter and not harder
0: what else you got leah
1: So finally, it is Pride Month in the US and the UK at the moment. It's an annual event, if you haven't heard about it, uh, that celebrates the LGBTQIA plus community. And it does feel more important than ever, given the regression of basic human rights that community has experienced, particularly in the US, over the last few years. So I'm sure your newsfeed is full of important events and initiatives that raise awareness. I wanted to share one that quite simply not only filled me with pride, But lots of joy.
0: Oh, I love it when you're filled with joy. Mm -hmm. You've got such a lovely smile.
1: Yeah, it it was was joyful. So last week, H&M USA, that's the clothing brand, made history by breaking the Guinness World Records official title for the most people attending a drag brunch in honour of Pride Month and in support of the LGBTQIA plus community.
0: Lovely. Do they call it a drunch?
1: A drunch. Oh, Maybe.
0: Drag brunch, brunch. drunch.
1: Anyway, carry on. <laughs> so, yes, since early 2022, drag events have faced more than 160 protests and significant threats. Amid the growing controversy surrounding Pride, H&M have doubled down on its efforts, not only to its year-round commitment to inclusivity and creating safe spaces, but for the initiatives and celebrations it is having during Pride Month. So, 412 people attended the drag brunch in Brooklyn, New York, and the event itself benefited one of the retailer's longtime collaborators and, of course, co host of the event, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, which, if you're not aware, is a national nonprofit dedicated to protecting and defending the human rights of black transgender people. So in a shared press release, Carlos Duarte, who is president of the H M Region Americas, had a really lovely way of celebrating it, I think. He said, Pride is supported 365 days a year, but our initiatives during June highlight this ongoing commitment. While we have moments like this to mark the importance of art and joy in our community, we will continue our consistent commitment to groups like the Master P. Johnson Institute, which provides vital services and empowerment to so many in need. Bravo. Well done,
0: well done. Don, absolutely, regular listeners will know that we are huge supporters of that community there with lots of friends and family who are part of it.
1: Our nephew is a drag queen.
0: Yes, he is. A very, very good one too. Okay, so we are diving today into the seven essential leadership lessons that our guest Kevin Dalstrom has accumulated over more than 20 years in corporate and startup business. This advice is gold.
1: Yes, and we will be working our way through seven incredibly valuable lessons sharing some of our thoughts, insights, and of course, the science along the way. But first, let's meet Kevin properly and hear more about his career and leadership experience
2: to date. In some ways, Swell is the the culmination of everything I've done in my career and in some ways my life's work. So I um, spent a a long career mostly in financial services, sort of at the intersection of financial services and technology. I came out of college in the mid nineties, when the internet was just becoming a thing. And so, you know, it was pretty clear from the beginning, it was going to be a big deal. And, and so I was attracted to internet businesses, but I was also always attracted to um, money as an industry, right? Because I um, got my my degrees in engineering and mathematics. so I've always been a numbers guy. And I thought, you know, money is just the ultimate consumer product. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody wants it. It's all digital. It never perishes. Uh, and so I thought, you know, what a cool way to build a career is kind of dealing with money, but bringing it into the internet age. And so, um, spent my career, I've, I've founded a number of companies. I've also worked as a chief marketing officer for a number of, uh, larger companies, uh, public companies. And, you know, over that long course of that career, I observed, which is, You know, something that's really obvious to anyone that has a bank account, which is banking is really broken. You know, banking and healthcare, the two massive industries, they're just horribly broken. You know, anywhere you look, it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work in favor of the consumer. It doesn't work the way it should work. And so that was the genesis for swell at the beginning of the pandemic. I wrote a white paper just about, I I kind of followed the cue of a famous Jeff Bezos uh, quote, your margin is my opportunity.
0: I think this is a common theme if you listen back to some of our previous founder stories uh hello Stella Smith from Perks then they generally they look at something and they go it doesn't exist and I'm going to make it exist and that's like a combination I always say that opportunity is a combination of I think foresight and luck or something because this sort of thing this this swell probably wouldn't have done well 15-20 years ago but since we've had films like The Big Short, we've had lots of films about banking scandal, lots of documentaries about banking scandal. Now the tide has turned. We, the public think the bankers are the bad guys. And I think what's incredibly clever here is that Kevin has basically taken that swell, that groundswell of, um, of, of feeling, and channeled it and gone, we can get the big guys back. And of course, he's got so much experience as well. So he's almost like the, what's that expression? The gamekeeper turned poacher or something? Your poacher turned gamekeeper where the idea you used to, you used to work for them and now you work for the others and basically a Robin Hood, not Robin Hood as in like the share company, because that's not a bad, that's a bad company from, from what I could hear. I was intrigued about this idea. Your margin is my opportunity. So
2: I asked Kevin to explain a little bit more about this. Banking is an industry that, um, you know, all the big banks make huge margin, huge profit margins, you know, hundreds of billions in profit, literally. Um, yet. Consumers don't feel like uh, banks are working in their best interest. So that spells opportunity to me. And so I wrote this white paper about all the ways in which banking is broken, and it sort of went low-key viral within financial circles and made its way into the, the hands of um, one particular CEO of a bank, a public bank that happened to be based in Hawaii. And we, um, we got together, talked about some ideas, had a meeting of the minds. One thing led to another, and we ended up incubating what is now an independent company swell inside of this bank and you know the basic idea was let's go do things better and you know of course that's the charter of most fintech companies i you know swell is what's called a fintech company we decided to focus very specifically on what i believe is the consumer finance problem of our time which is credit card debt you know uh credit card debt just reached an all-time high of nearly a trillion dollars in the us um the apr or the interest rate that people are paying on that debt just reached an all-time high more americans than ever are just struggling to pay those bills and so um swell is tackling that market head-on with a very simple strategy which is lower prices you know and it's easy to say that it's really hard to do to pull together all the pieces that you need in a heavily regulated industry to disrupt the credit card industry is very difficult um So it's taken us uh, a little over a year to build the product. And actually your timing is great because we just were literally launching the product this week. And so, you know, the basic idea is if you have credit card debt, you apply for an account with swell. And uh, if you're approved, you'll get a much lower rate, which for many of our customers saves them thousands of dollars in interest. So it's a very significant savings amount.
0: So I think this is just US based, but it's such a cool idea, and I can see it coming to the UK. I think see someone like Starling taking this up and just running with it.
1: Absolutely. What was that film we were watching recently?
0: Uh the naughty one, the adult one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you medicated?
0: I've I've yeah, I've gone full on wanker with my tea, honey, and lemon, and I think I've gone I think I've had too much of it. <laughs> Carry on. What was the film we watched recently?
1: Thank you, Dave. That's oh, the one. That was
0: such a great film.
1: It really was. If you if you haven't watched it, definitely put it on your on your list. I think it's on Netflix. Um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, Swell is not a learning in pushing back against. The big banks and showing the financial service industry and its customers that it doesn't have to be that way. I think that is also such a common theme that we see in, and I hate to use the word, change makers, leaders that are just trying to make things better. It doesn't have to be this way. And I think we have seen a lot of that since the financial crisis, which was in 2008, a lot of trust was lost in big financial institutions and it has led to a rise in challenger banks and fintechs. I was reading something that was saying something like there's around 150 challenger banks now that have a collective consumer base of 200 million. Wow. Which, bearing in mind, is only, what, 15 years just about, maybe. That's an incredible story of growth. So you might be thinking, Leah, why are you telling me this? Well, I guess it. It may seem commonplace now that challenger banks are a thing, like your mons are like your starlings, and that the disruptive fintechs are a thing. But until a financial crisis, the banking sector was a closed and elitist community. And going back to the Bank of Dave story, that was the... Um, so a guy called Dave founded the Burnley Savings and Loans that officially opened in September 2011. Um, after, but that was after Dave Fishwick had been awarded the first banking license to be issued in the UK for more than a hundred years. Incredible. It was unthinkable that the financial services and banking industry could be disrupted. It was the way things were. Like the office and entrepreneurship and leadership. That's just how we do things. So my point is really that disruptive change, change that revolutionizes how things have been done for hundreds of years is never actually really that far away. And I think we're seeing the start of that now in people and culture. We expect more from our working life. We expect more from our leaders and it's early disruptors like Kevin Dolstrom that have proven human-centered leadership not only works, it's the accelerator of success.
0: There's lots of people out there who are disrupting things, who are amazing entrepreneurs, but not too many who are amazing entrepreneurs and great leaders. Sorry, Elon. So, the first leadership lesson that Kevin's got to offer is that values and the values that he creates are for life and not for the walls. I love this. This just the, that's one of your bugbears, isn't it, At the end when you walk into the an office and it's got like, mm-hmm. it's the equivalent of love, la- live,
2: laugh.
1: <laughs> that's exactly wall. what it is.
2: Just bullshit. <laughs> not for Kevin. Let's listen. Let's hear from Kevin. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big proponent of having clear values. You know, of course, like most companies do have values. They end up being something that gets posted into the break room and then forgotten about. Uh And, you know, my belief is if you're going to bother to create values, then you need to live them. And the way you live them is like they should be a litmus test for literally everything you do. And so, um, you know, we have four core values at Swell. Uh, I can get into the details of them if you want, but I'll just list them out quickly. You know, one is that the why matters. So you know, we're a very mission-driven company. So um, you know, if your why is that we want to make a bunch of money as a company, that's okay, but just own that, right? The, because that's that why will drive your behavior. In our case, it's a little bit bigger. than we we truly want to help consumers build wealth and get rid of debt. Um, so why you're doing things matters. The second one is best idea wins. You know, as a startup, we're a disruptor. We're an innovator. And so, and I've always believed that, you know, um, I don't have all the ideas as the founder and CEO. Neither does my executive team. Great ideas can come from anywhere. So this idea of sort of a flat hierarchy and that, you know, it's not rank that, that decides which ideas win. It's the merits of the idea itself. Uh, So that's the second value. The third one is the way you do anything is the way you do everything. We would rather do a few things really well than try to do too much and do an okay or a, or a poor job. And I think you've seen that reflected in, in our, our sort of, um, our website and our product is that there's a lot of things we could attack in banking. We are attacking a very specific niche within consumer credit. That's where we start. And that niche happens to be really huge, but. Uh, focus is really important. And then the the craftsmanship and attention to detail is critical. And then the last one is always working, always playing. You know, the way work has evolved and, and COVID really was an inflection point and accelerated this is that, you know, we're a remote first company and um, there, are, there are pros to that and there are cons to that. One of the pros is that you have lots of flexibility and the way not the nature of knowledge work is it's not like factory work where you just sort of work in a linear fashion for fixed hours you know, inspiration comes in fits and spurts. And so we work in a very flexible style. We're extremely results oriented. And rather than like, I'm not a big fan of the term life, work-life balance. I think of it more as an integration where, you know, just throughout your day, you're doing some work, you're doing some personal stuff, you're having some fun. So kind of always working, always playing is the vibe we're, we're striving for. How you
0: do something is how you do anything. We've been saying that for years and it's just one of my favorite, favorite things. Now, Kevin also made it really clear that as leaders, we need to live our values and we need to reflect our values in our behaviors and our ways of working.
2: Uh, Your podcast is sort of about culture. And I think, you know, a lot of culture obviously starts at the top is, you know, does the person at the top, does the CEO or the founder live their values? And certainly one of my values is to be accessible. And I have always had this policy on Twitter that I respond to every single DM that I get and as I've as my account has grown, it's gotten more and more difficult. It's actually become a, a significant part of my day. But I consider that just to be part of my job and I I enjoy the interactions that I, I have. Kevin
1: just gave a really simple example there of how to live your values. Mine one of my values as the leader, Kevin says, is I am accessible. If people need to ask me a question, I am there. And he's extended that to his his connections, his community on social media, and he spends a proportion of his day answering DMs. It's as simple as that. And that's congruence. We like that. You're you're doing what you say you will do. You're living by your values.
0: Absolutely. And values, we had the amazing PJ Brady on talking about brave, smart, kind, and his his trifactor of values. And I think that maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, values was just something that happened in the boardroom. Oh, we've created some new values. And now almost everyone is saying, no, this needs to be everyone needs to be able to recite the values they need to know them they need to live by them and I just think it's a great revolution
1: It really is So that is our first leadership lesson from Kevin Values are for life not for walls Kevin's second leadership lesson takes this idea one step further by saying the way you do anything is the way you do everything
2: The way you do anything is the way you do everything is a famous quote from an American poet that I really like named Annie Dillard and, uh, you know, I, there's lots of ways you can go with that quote. Sorry to kind of go on a tangent here, but, but, um, you know, even when it comes to hiring, when I interview people, I will often ask more questions about their personal life than their work history because of this idea that the way you do anything is the way you do everything. It's often more telling to understand how someone thinks about their personal life. Because we're not, you know, we don't become one person in our personal life and then a completely different person at work. It all works together. We are who we are. And so uh, I think there's a lot of ways. It's a That's a great pearl of wisdom. There's a lot of ways to apply it in business. So what I really like
0: about this is this idea that you look at how someone lives their life and then work is part of that life because let's be honest, we've all been to an interview where we've kind of said the things that we think that the other person wants to hear or we or we do this LinkedIn profile or this fake persona on LinkedIn going, oh my God, I'm so, do you know, guess on my tits or people who say, I'm so grateful that I've been nominated for this award. Shut up.
1: I think the worst ones are like when it's actually like humble brag alert. Oh.
0: It's like
1: don't be. Do you know what? Just brag. If you yep. have achieved that thing that you worked really hard for, you shout from the rooftops and you tell the world. Don't be. Don't, there's not a place to be humble there either. Don't say anything or brag.
0: Exactly. And so and so that I think what annoys me and possibly you about that sort of thing is that you feel that if they're going to be like that on LinkedIn, then either they're really fake. And they're being like that on LinkedIn. Or that's actually how they are in real life. Well, either way, they're not someone I want to knock about with, to be honest. Um So I think what I really like is the idea of saying, okay, so what is it about your personal life? Let's learn a bit more about you. And that will help me to make a decision about what you're, how you're going to approach work. So Kevin went on to explain that doing the right thing under all circumstances doesn't come easy. But this authentic leadership approach can be
2: incredibly powerful. At the end of the day, doing the right thing is a really powerful thing. Like, you know there's um there's a lot of people in business and just in life who will do the right thing when it's convenient or when it serves their purpose there's actually not that many people who will do the right thing when it's inconvenient or where it, or when it comes at with a sacrifice and i've made a policy for a long time of doing the right thing under all circumstances and it turns out that um that that sort of mindset um is somewhat selfish because it repays over time. It's kind of playing the long game. The, the example you're talking about is uh, our head of design, actually. Um, her father ended up stumbling into my account on Twitter and became a follower and yeah, reached out and said, Hey, my daughter says says great things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, look, I've been in the corporate world for a long time. It's um it's surprising how few, especially at the top levels um you know are fundamentally just like good people that do the right thing under all circumstances um you know i think somewhere along the way they it gets beaten out of them you know the system beats it out of them or i I don't know what happens but yeah it all starts like look at the end of the day um we're all just living life right and you know work is a big part of our life um why wouldn't you want to make that a positive experience for everybody
1: Living authentically or being able to bring our whole selves to work really is linked to high levels of well-being. So when Kevin was speaking before about understanding the whole person, that really will make a difference to an individual experience during that recruitment process. Being authentic implies acting in congruence, alignment or consistency with our true selves. And this means being consistent with our inner experiences. If we're not, it can feel like we're living a double life or a secret life, being a pretender, being an imposter to yourself. And sooner or later, this lack of authenticity causes dissatisfaction, depression, anxiety, loneliness, and at times despair. But by leading with authenticity and sincerity, Kevin is allowing others to be their whole selves at work, which means his employees will experience the highest levels of positive well-being. And when it comes to consistency, we know that as humans, we like that. We see inconsistency as a threat. That threat triggers our fight or flight response, our brain chemistry changes, our stress levels go up, and we begin to withdraw into ourselves. If you're one thing as a leader, be consistent.
0: So Kevin's third leadership lesson is don't bargain shop for talent. Now, the tweet that I first made me notice, Kevin was about this story about how he got a guy who worked in a bike shop and how he basically
2: offered him a job, but it wasn't what you think. I'm going to leave Kevin to explain. Well, this is probably, I don't know, almost 10 years ago now. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories about hiring. I'll tell it real quickly if you want me to. Um, but uh, yeah, it speaks a lot to to hiring and and culture. Um but but basically, uh, and, and the I posted it online. That, that might have been where you saw it, and it kind of went viral because I think it really resonates with people um, in terms of the way hiring should be approached. But this was years ago. I was the CMO of this growth technology company, and I was looking to hire a junior level digital marketing uh, position. And um, I had met this. I, I was a um, pretty avid cyclist at the time. I rode my bike a lot. And I gotten to know this guy who worked at a bike shop. His name was John. And um we we had a lot of conversations, just talked over over conversations with bikes. And when he was fixing my bike, and I knew that he wanted to kind of pivot his career. He wanted to do something. He wanted more than just to be a, a bike mechanic. And um, I, you know, I noticed over time he was a really sharp guy, had kind of an engineer's mindset. And so I mentioned to him, hey. You know, if you're looking to get into a different industry, I've got an opportunity to become a, um, you know, start off like entry-level position in digital marketing, which is completely different. You're going to have to learn on the fly and so on. He was really interested. He interviewed um, at our company and the interview went really well. And so I uh, texted him and I said, hey, um, interviews went well. Give me a ring because we need to talk about compensation. Right. And so he calls me up and I could tell he was a little bit nervous to have this discussion Um, and I said, well, you know, John, um, tell me, you know, what kind of compensation do you think you need for this, um, you know, to, to come on board with us? What would you need to kind of make this make sense for you? And I could tell he'd prepared for this and he, um, he said, well, you know, I've got a young family and I'm about to have another child and for me to make this move, I would really need to make $50,000 a year. And at the time, you know, 10 years ago, that was a significant um, salary for an entry level position. And so I paused from home and I said, you know, John, um, the, you know, we're going to have to train you on this. You know, this, I'm kind of taking a chance on you here. We're going to have to provide training. You're somewhat of an unknown unknown quantity. So I don't think I can do $50,000. How about 60,000? And it was like dumbfounded silence. And I could tell he was choking up on, I still get goosebumps when I talk about it. I could tell he was choking up on the other end. And the, the point being like, look, it, you know, I, when you hire someone, go all in with them, right? You want them to be over the top happy about their position. And I knew this was a life changing opportunity for, for John. And I will tell you that, um, the benefit of that $10,000 was repaid, uh, you know, tenfold, if not a hundredfold over time. He ended up staying with the company a long time. He ended up growing into running digital marketing. And I'm pretty sure if it came down to it, uh, John would have taken a bullet for me. That's how he, that's how grateful he was about the opportunity. So it's a great story just to say, like, look, you know, when you, when you hire people, hire great people and go all in on them. Like don't bargain shop for, for talent.
1: It's funny, you know, there's a phenomenon in the workplace right now called act your salary. I almost included it as a word of the week. Basically means that rather than going above and beyond, just act your salary, do the work that you are salaried to do. Some say it's another Gen Z misstep to not strive to be at your very best. Others say it's a matter of principle and protest to ensure employers are are paying people for the work that they do. I guess my question would be to employees who do barter down a couple of grand on each new hire's expectations. What are you actually getting from that? Like in the grand scheme of things, what difference does a couple of grand make if you hire somebody for say 50 grand a year in a role that you hope to have in your business for five years? That's a quarter of a million pound investment and your bartering may have saved you 10K on that. Yeah, as we've heard from Kevin... The ROI on his very slightly inflated investment was almost immeasurable in terms of the dedication and the commitment and the role effort that person gave him. Kevin's ROI was exponential.
0: I think we probably, if we don't have the story ourselves, we might have heard stories from our friends of someone who's gone above and beyond for their, like as a boss, gone above and beyond for their employees. And they've just earned the trust forever and ever and ever. And I just think that's so, so cool.
1: I agree. And that is our third leadership lesson from Kevin. Never bargain shop for talent.
0: Now on to number four. There is a misguided definition of success. When I started when I started building businesses back when I was about twenty three, twenty-four, I thought success was a big house, big car. Um, horses, yachts, helicopters, all that kind of bullshit, let's be honest. Um, And then as I got older, I realized that that is completely not what success is. It is for some people because some people play the game and that's the way that they see the conversation of the game. That's why if you go to Saudi Arabia, if you go to Abu Dhabi, for example, then, you know, a lot of people are playing the game to go, I I want to go and now get a gold-plated Rolls-Royce because the standard £500,000 Rolls-Royce is no good for me. Okay, fine, you're playing a game... But success to us, Leanne and I were talking about it the other day, success to us is not setting an alarm clock. And that's basically it. And so we didn't, we haven't set an alarm clock for years and years apart from a flight or something or a train. We haven't set it for years and years and years. And that to us is our definition of success. Lesson number four is, don't chase a misguided definition of success.
2: And I think a lot of it comes down to your definition of success. You know, I spent a lot of my career chasing frankly a misguided definition of success. I was defining I was allowing society to define success for me and of course we all know what that looks like, right? All the the glitz and glamour, big titles, money, cars, big houses, whatever. Um and what I realized and for me unfortunately this didn't happen until midlife i was in my 40s and kind of had a classic you know midlife crisis if you will and realized that um the the life i had built was not me it was some other guy i was playing the role of some other guy and it looked really great on paper right checked all the boxes of success but i was not that happy i was pretty miserable and so i did in my mid 40s i did a major reboot relocated my family walked away from an absurd amount of money Um, to basically um, have the life that I want, and I haven't looked back. That was, you know, over five years ago now, and um, I have to pinch myself now because uh, I've been able to construct a life that I don't want to break. I don't even like. I was telling, I was joking with my wife the other day that I actually get grumpy on weekends and holidays because, you know, my day-to-day life is exactly the life I want, and I get sort of frustrated when. Um, it gets disrupted by a weekend. So I'm sort of the the opposite of everybody else who looks forward to the weekends, lives for the weekends or holidays. so, um, so, yeah, I mean, that was a big change in my life. and um, but it feels good to like, you know, Carl Jung, the philosopher, says that over over a lifetime, we accumulate these masks. We wear these masks, and these masks are 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 not a bad thing because they allow us to survive and thrive in society. But over time, Um, if you accumulate too many masks, you sort of lose sight of who you really are on the inside and eventually those masks will come off. And for me, it kind of happened all at once. And, um, I made a bunch of changes in my life and am in a much, much better place now. Is these masks, that's just such a great way
0: to describe it. Um, pretending that this brand new car makes you happy because it doesn't. It doesn't, it might make you happy for about 10 minutes when you drive it over, but then there's always someone with a bigger, bigger car, isn't there? Maybe that's euphemistically speaking as well. So I asked Kevin what his biggest high has been as a business leader and the point at which he really knew that he'd made it. So he went on to explain that money and financial gains are fleeting, but it's the relationships and experiences that really matter.
2: Because the obvious uh, answer would be, you know, look at this big financial win that I have, or, you know, the company went public or you know look at these sales numbers or revenue growth but if you believe as i do that um you know really all that matters in life are the relationships and experiences that you you collect uh along the way then the things i think about as the high points are just rad experiences you know just really amazing experiences and um i th- i think you alluded to one earlier uh where you know I got to participate in a multi-billion dollar deal with, uh, the SoftBank, legendary SoftBank Vision Fund and Masa San, the legendary chairman of, of SoftBank. And that was a very baller experience that was like, um, it was like playing business chess at the absolute highest level. That, that experience was, uh, sort of a bucket list once in a lifetime experience. And I've had a few of those over time. And actually the, the irony is, that deal didn't work out we We ended up doing a different deal, so there's no financial win to even point to out of that deal. It was just an amazing, amazing experience and so you know i've collected because you know i guess if I have any claim to fame, it's that you know i've i've my career's now been going on for thirty plus years, and I think I've run harder than most for longer than most, so I've collected just a ridiculous number of experiences. And so inevitably, if you just do that many things, you're going to have some cool things happen to you. And more importantly, you'll meet some great people along the way. And that's really where where the real value is. Um, one of my friends, uh, he's a real estate private equity guy uh, named Richard Fertig. Um, he has this saying that basically like the ultimate litmus test in life is just do cool shit with cool people, period. And that really does say it all right? Because it provides a framework for deciding what you do and don't do. But also it's just a great way to live because if you're doing things that you're excited about with people that you like being around, there's no losing. The company might go out of business, uh, but you haven't lost anything because you were still doing cool shit with cool people. Uh, so so anyway, that's a that's a um, kind of a mantra that I like to live my life by.
1: Doing cool shit with cool people. Love it. Do you know what? Since we've started this podcast, I... I... There are times where, because it takes up quite a big part of our working week now, and because of that, we have had to scale down some of the the consultancy work that we've done. And that's now that, you know, we're finding our feet with it, we're starting to scale that back up again. And there are times that I miss it. You know, I'm a psychologist. I want to be working with organizations driving this type of change. But then on the other hand, I'm like, wait a minute. I've just spent the last six, eight months doing cool shit with really cool people. Nothing's wasted. It's all just, that's the is Isn't that just the... If you can wake up every day and just do cool shit with cool people.
0: I love it. I love it. And are you saying I'm cool? Is that what you're saying? You meant more, I guess, didn't you?
1: so we've also you know we've talked about (laughs)
0: very good of course
1: you're cool of course you are but no I mean in terms of what Kevin's saying there as well with relationships we've talked about the Harvard study of happiness before on the podcast to remind you the early 1980s researchers at Harvard started a longitudinal study that's a multi-year study to find out what makes us happy in life and after 85 years of following its participants and their families they conclude it's not career achievement it's not money it's not exercise or a healthy diet the most consistent finding was that positive relationships keep us happier, healthier, and help us live longer.
0: So, so number five, Kevin's fifth lesson is culture trumps strategy every time. When I asked Kevin about this, he's drew on his own experience from case studies from other industries and he explained that if you look at the greatest companies in the world through the ups and downs of the market and product cycles, it is the culture that sustains them.
2: Yeah, I've got a um, pretty unique perspective and maybe a little bit of authority on this issue simply because of the variety of my experience. I think I'm the only living uh, chief marketing officer who has done a rebrand at three public companies. So I've come into existing companies with hundreds or thousands of employees and done a rebrand where we had to kind of turn the culture around. And I've also been a founder of several startups where it's a little bit easier in that case because you get to start with a blank canvas, right? And you can decide what you value. You can decide who you hire and handpick every single person and and so on um and so i've got I've had a unique purview to like how do you what are the the kind of ingredients for for good culture bad culture and how do you how do you shift culture and um you know it's there, there's a saying that you know culture trumps strategy every time, and it really is is true like if you look at the greatest companies in the world. Through the ups and downs of the market, through different product cycles, it's the culture that sustains them. So it's really important, and, and you know, I come to believe over time that it's something that most companies dramatically underinvest in. Is really, is really like at a basic level, like understanding, like who are we really? I think a lot of companies um, can state who they'd like to be, but like it's really important to take a hard look in the mirror and say, like who are like what do we really value? Who are we? And then, how do we leverage those strengths, right? And and I, you know, I, I believe like culture happens from both the top down and the bottom up. Because at the top level, it, it's got to it, if your culture and your values aren't a reflection of your leadership and who they really are, then um, it's not going to it's not it just doesn't work because they're not going to live those those values in that culture. But at the same time, you can't just drive culture completely top down through the organization. So obviously, Kevin's a big fan of culture. He also pointed out that a consumer
0: brand must align with the employer brand because they're basically two sides of the same culture
2: coin. What's sad is when you see companies that have great culture and then it, it gets diluted over time because a lot of times what happens is you'll have founders who come in who are who build a great culture and sometimes it's so great that the company can become worth billions or hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, before it, uh, you know, on the back of that culture. But then inevitably it starts, you know, the founders leave, it's death through a thousand cuts. And so I think the example I like to talk about a lot these days is one where they had done, they had basically a company who had done the impossible. um, And then they eroded an incredible brand, incredible culture over time. And the example I'm talking about is Southwest Airlines. So... Mm -hmm. Southwest Airlines, you know, came into a commodity business, a very difficult commodity business, which is, you know, short haul air travel. And, uh, their founder, Herb Kelleher, did the impossible, which is he built a brand that people loved, um, that in a, in a crappy industry, basically where it's really hard to differentiate. And he did a lot of things to differentiate, but a lot of it was just service. It was the culture. Like it was the attitudes of the employees and the fact that they were, they were like, they were really um cared about getting the planes out on time and delivering service with a smile and so on. And that that resulted in Southwest outperforming its peers for decades. But then what happened is Southwest, you know, Herb Herb Kelleher left and even his successors left. And then, of course, you know, the, the bean counters, the accountants started taking over a little bit. Um, they started merging with other companies. And you saw there was a, during Christmas, there was a huge fiasco. I don't know if you followed it, um, here in the States where, uh, where Southwest's entire system basically broke down because they hadn't been investing in it in years. They'd been trying to focus on cost control above all else. And, um, what happened is they had reached a breaking point where they had done so much to erode the brand, then it eventually just cratered. And it's one of those things like, you know, with for a strong brand, the degradation of it happens slowly at first, but then all at once at some point, the dam breaks. And so, you know, it kind of cuts both ways. If you're not continually investing in, in culture, then, uh, eventually you pay a price for it. Culture can sustain a company for a long time. You know, if you look at the other great examples, it's, it's some of the obvious ones, right? So like you think about Google or Apple, you know, with their culture of innovation or focus on speed and simplicity and things like that design. Those are things that, that endure across products, right? So like the great example, of course, with Apple being, you know, Steve Jobs is long gone. Rest in peace. Um, but you know, you still know what to expect when Apple launches a product, right? And I'm a, you know, unabashed Apple fanboy myself. So like if Apple launches the next product, I have a heavy bias to just buy it because I know the way they approach product design and it resonates with me. And so that's that's incredible power, right? When you've, when you've got that kind of loyalty to a brand, which ultimately is a culture and uh, such that people are predisposed to follow you, whatever you do.
0: Quick announcement for all listeners. Yeah, I've got a I've got a new toy on my on my little deck thing so I can make my voice change. Anyway, sorry. I Leanne. love
1: it, do it again.
0: Hello
2: Leanne.
1: Whoa! Do another one. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> But we didn't interrupt your podcast listening for uh, for this. We actually interrupted it to tell you about one of our new favourite podcasts. It's called Success Story. It is hosted by Scott D. Clary and it is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features question and answer sessions and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups and entrepreneurship.
0: Oh, and if you like this podcast, then I think you'll love Scott's episode in back in December where the infamous Seth Godin talks about empowering employees. So go listen to success stories wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I cheated on Ella a couple of weeks ago and was on another podcast called The Map Room.
0: Hmm, i want to talk to you about that.
1: Yeah, but we talked quite a lot about this actually, the, the mismatch between employer brand and customer brand and how that incongruence can really drive us nuts. And I talk about, we talk about incongruence a lot. So, I mean, in terms of psychology, incongruence is a theory and it goes back to the time of Carl Rogers and he observed that when there is a discrepancy between our perceived self and our ideal self, we experience experience unpleasant feelings. So now in an organizational psychology, it's been extended to describe a situation where organizations and employees have different perceptions and expectations or a break in the psychological contract. So, when a psychological contract is broken, commitment, performance, productivity it all drop. So does morale. And if the incongruence is experienced repeatedly or consistently over time, employees will start to vocalize this violation in a psychological contract, often in some sort of protest. You may have seen the protest by Amazon workers recently in terms of the uh, call back to the office, the open letter that we mentioned a few episodes ago from employees at Starbucks. You know, this is a type of backlash we can see as leaders if we break the psychological contract. And, you know, in, in that scenario, insisting to your customers that your brand puts people first will be laughable, really. And I think that's what Kevin's saying there. You know, culture can erode over time. And if it, does so to a point where it's not stopped and rescued. It not only has a massive impact on our employees, but a massive impact on the commercial success of our business too.
0: 100% cannot add anything to that because you've just, you've nailed it, absolutely nailed it. Okay, so we're onto lesson number six, you don't learn anything when things are going well. Love this.
2: You are defined by how you conduct yourself and how you respond when things are going poorly. So, you know, I've definitely had, situ- I've had companies fail, right? So, you know, uh, by any objective measure, that would be a really dark moment. But um, I, even in those situations, I've always tended to take a bit of a portfolio view with my, of my career. It's like, look, the harsh fact is that um, if, if you do startups for a long time and you do enough of them, um, a bunch of them are going to fail, right? Statistically speaking, you're going to fail. Um, but now if you stay at it long enough and you get smarter and you choose your opportunities wisely, hopefully you'll have at least one success that more than makes up for all the failures. And so, um, I can think of some dark moments like when, you know, when you have a company and you've hired dozens of employees and you raised a bunch of money from investors and it's clear that it's not going to work. Um, it's really painful to watch that, that company die. It's your baby. You've put your blood, sweat and tears into it you know, people and their families are counting on that company for their paycheck. That's a really, really painful moment. But also you have to kind of rise above and say, okay, um, what am I going to learn from this experience, right? And will I be better the next time? Uh, and so, you know, I don't know. I, I uh, there, There's a saying, I think it's Ryan, the author Ryan Holiday that says, the obstacle is the way. And, you know, like that one thing I've learned over my career and, and my rock climbing has been a huge Teacher in this regard is that the 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 struggle is the reward right so to use a, a climbing analogy um when you get to the top of a mountain the summit there's nothing there quite literally there's nothing there you just look around there's nothing. Uh, so you need to learn to enjoy the climb and struggle along the way because that's where all the good stuff happens oh yes absolutely absolutely I, I love this and I've never really thought about this before but I mean in terms
0: of rock climbing i i, I get vertigo standing up, to be honest, not comfortable being this tall. Um, But I can see what he's saying is that rock climbing is a perfect analogy because it is about getting, it's not about getting to the top, it's about the journey to the top. Remember when I was building my first beer business, give me some beer, and I thought it was, I thought it was going to be brilliant, I thought I was going to be a millionaire, I was going to franchise it, and then it all started to go tits up, it all started to go wrong. And I learned so much in the like the probably 22 months from when it was at its its peak to when I went bankrupt and had two houses repossessed. I learned so much from that. And and at that point, perhaps if it happened to me now, I think I might have given up. But because then I was maybe 30, I was like, no, I've still got time. I can rebuild. And I built another business, a property business around people who are getting repossessed or in debt or going bankrupt. I would never have started that business if I hadn't have experienced all of the downside and adversity, is that the right word, that I had in my beer business.
1: Yeah, we definitely learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. And in in the organizational psychology world, what Kevin is talking about here is a learning culture. So a learning culture is an environment that demonstrates and really encourages both individual and organizational learning. The idea is that gaining and sharing knowledge is prioritized, it is valued, it is rewarded. And that does mean allowing people to make mistakes. The research is pretty compelling when it comes to learning cultures. Learning cultures typically enjoy high levels of employee engagement and retention, more creativity and innovation. They're far more resilient to change. Businesses with a learning culture also tend to have happier customers. Customers are more satisfied, they are more loyal, and they are strong advocates of the brand.
0: Big shout out to anyone who's building in public, hashtag Public on Twitter. Um And I think that's a very much, they're showing from the top, from the top down, even if they're like solo developers, but a lot of them have, are bigger companies and they will sort of publish on Twitter or on LinkedIn and say, this is what we did this week. This is what went right. This is what, did, what went wrong. That's easy for me to say. And so the whole point of that, I think, is that it's learning. It's showing that the top, the people from the top don't say they know everything. And so they're telling everyone else it's okay to learn on the job it's okay to jump off the cliff and build the uh, the wings on the way down although I'm sure Kevin's probably got a much more effective way of getting down from the cliff top <laughs> talking of Kevin that it, it might be the eighth wonder of the world not Kevin compounding but it's the is our seventh lesson today Kevin's lesson seventh lesson for leadership is compounding is the key to everything I don't think I even need to say anything I think I leave to, leave it up to Kevin
2: compounding is really the key to everything I don't care if it's like pursuing a sport, a hobby, a career, a relationship, anything, everything compounds. And all compound compounding means is little incremental baby steps over a prolonged period of time don't provide a uh, linear return. They provide exponential return, right? So it, it adds up. Same thing in, in you know, it, the, the term comes from finance, right? And it, it's hard to grasp the power of compounding until you see it. And so just the power of um, consistent, deliberate effort applied over time is unbeatable. Now, the catch is, and I'm glad you mentioned this, is you have to be careful about what you're compounding, right? And this is, so what I always preach to young people is the most important thing to do when you're young or really at any age, but ideally when you're young, so let's say in your 20s or early 30s. You need to take the time to clearly define what the desired end state is for your life. I'm not just talking about your career. I'm saying literally get out a piece of paper and a pencil and bullet point out what your life looks like in the ideal case. And of course, this will change over time, but at any given moment in time, like like what do your relationships look like? How are you spending your time? What are you doing for work? What does your financial situation look like? Um, what are you doing with your, with your free time? What about your children and your, your friends and, and like as much detail as you can. And I've done this and it's, it was like a bulleted list of, you know, maybe 30 items, right? The reason that's important is because now you can work backward and you can start being deliberate today. Even if some of the things on your list will take decades to achieve, um, you can start today being at least deliberate and it provides a framework to say yes or say no. So at least you're kind of roughly headed in the right. Direction because as I, um, as you mentioned, there is something that I call the opportunity trap where if you're someone like me and you don't take the time to define that end state, that desired end state, and you just listen to what society tells you. Well, what society told me is you got to make a lot of money. You got to, you got to move your way up, up the corporate ladder. And so I did that and I compounded on that for, for, you know, 20 years, made it to the top only to realize that that wasn't actually what I wanted. So I'd spent all this time. Now, there are benefits, right? Like I'd made a bunch of money and that sort of thing, which is great, it allowed me to pivot. I think I've talked to over a 100 people who generally range between you know upper 20s to low 40s in age. And, and they all have different situations, but my advice to them is almost always the same. Like whatever your problems are today, take a step back, define that desired end state, and that then the path will become clear.
1: What a call to action. You need to take the time to clearly define what the desired end state is for your life. Goodness, that can feel overwhelming. There is an awesome coaching exercise that I use a lot called Vitals. It was introduced to me by Dr. Audrey Tang and it's rooted in positive psychology. So as we've discussed already, understanding and living by our values really is a core part of maintaining our well-being and building our resilience. In circumstances where environments are misaligned with our values, we often experience these these reactions, this emotional and psychological discomfort. And over a period of time, it is actually called moral burnout that we can experience. And that translates into a lack of meaning with our work, with our lives, lives is not a good place to be the vitals model is actually really good at helping us recognize exactly what kevin was talking about there what is important to us in our life it helps us choose opportunities and actions that are authentic to us including new jobs hobbies and relationships so the vitals model includes values interests, temperament around the clock life mission and strengths i will leave a link in the show notes if you want to give it a go And as Kevin explains, it might also help you build a multidimensional
2: life. There's one more important aspect I want to mention too, which is building a multidimensional life, right? So a lot of men in particular, a lot of our identity is our career. And the problem with that is, you know, we have this notion that we're going to focus on our career and then at some point we'll build a better life. And the problem is that that someday rarely comes. And what happens then is your entire... Uh, identity is based on your work. So if you have a company that goes bankrupt, you're devastated. Well, if you build a multidimensional life, which means like, yeah, work's important, but it's only one facet of who I am. Then um, when one thing's going good or bad, it balances out with the others. And the thing that you have to remember is everything takes time and compounding. And so the idea that you're going to work for 20 years and then start to get healthy or then start to a family or whatever, it doesn't work that way. Everything takes time to compound. So you have to start today, you know, whether it's like, um, you know, fitness, relationships, a hobby, um, whatever, those things all need to compound in parallel and you need to be multidimensional. Bravo. Well done, Kevin. Absolutely. When you
0: identify or when, when you pin everything on one thing and the idea that if this business is going to define your identity, it has to work. Because if it fails, your identity has failed and you are a failure. So you cannot, and this is where we go down the whole idea of men's mental health, which is different as from what I learned from Leanne and some of our guests, was very different to women's mental health, is that men's mental health tends to concentrate around shame. And the shame of saying I'm going to go and do something because you read these books, going do these affirmations, write these goals out, tell everyone what you're going to do, and then you can't back down. And then when it all goes to shit, you have to back down, and you have to make up some kind of rubbish like, oh well, I didn't really want that car in the first place anyway. I'm, I'm going to go and buy myself a nice green Mitsubishi or something. Um, or uh, you have to say, oh, it wasn't down to me; it was external forces. In which case, you're not taking a, you're not taking ownership of the entire situation. So I feel like I'm actually taken away from what Kevin said there, because what he said was absolutely perfect. And I think everyone should hear that.
1: I don't think you have taken away from it. I think you've added to it very beautifully. And I think that is maybe the struggle that we're seeing with the younger generations coming through at the minute. They're trying to do this from day one of their career. Whereas as Kevin said himself, this was something he had to do retrospectively. So I don't think we can really hate on the younger generations for wanting to get this right from the beginning. And I think as well, just the authenticity through Kevin just really shows Think back to his intro there. And this is how he describes himself and how we introduced him. He's the CEO of Disruptive Fintech. He's been a chief marketing officer. He's a father. He's a rock climber. He's fitness enthusiast. He is the nicest guy on Twitter. He is multidimensional.
0: I love it. I love it. So shall we recap on... King Kevin's seven lessons for leadership. Do you want to take them one by one?
1: Yes. So lesson number one, values are for life, not for walls.
0: Lesson number two, the way you do anything is the way you do everything.
1: Lesson number three, never bargain shop for talent.
0: Lesson number four, don't chase a misguided definition of success.
1: Number five, culture trump strategy every time.
0: Number six, you don't learn anything when things are going well.
1: And number seven, compounding is key.
0: So... To conclude, I wanted to get some final words of wisdom from Kevin. I said, how is it you're doing something brand new every single day and not losing motivation? How is it you're coming up against these challenges and it's not always working out?
2: I take nothing for granted. I never feel like I'm there. I always feel like the the best is yet to come. And, the, you know, uh, my, more of my life is ahead of me than behind me, even though at some point it's hard to make that argument <laughs> logically. Um and you know i know that my father was that way so maybe he demonstrated you know i i didn't have a great relationship with my father but that's one thing he did pass on to me is this um notion that like the best is yet to come always looking forward don't look um backward but but even if you didn't inherit that mindset i just think it's a it's a choice like it's a it's a it's the best way to choose to live because ultimately we can't change the past anyway and you know the i um you know you have to ask yourself, like, what is fulfillment? Like, what is the end goal? I determined, like, at a relatively late stage in life, was as good as it gets is being able to choose your challenges, right? So, you know, I've earned the right to have um, control over my time, control over the the challenges I undertake. No, there's no happiness in like the proverbial like retiring and playing cards or playing golf all day. That's a path to misery. Um, as good as it gets is just being able to construct your life the way you want, and um, i 've been able to do that, and I, I still truly believe that you know the things i 'm working on now are bigger and better than ever, and so you know continue to j- just look forward and and I just say even if you 're younger that 's why it 's so important to um, take the time to define that end state that I talked about um, is because, you know, that's the thing that you're, you're building toward and that will evolve over time, but it's a never ending process. Like I published my list of in-state the other day and yeah, the good news is at 52, I've probably already achieved three quarters of them, but there's still five or six on that list that I want to chase. And so that that's all there is at the end of the day.
0: The best is yet to come. What fantastic advice from Kevin Sr. there.
1: Yeah, and I think that's all you can do, you know, as a leader, just keep on moving forward, keep striving to be better, keep listening to yourself, investing in yourself. And we hope that these seven lessons of leadership will help you add to your leadership development plan and future coaching conversations. If you've loved listening to Kevin as much as we have and want to hear more inspirational stories, there is some excellent news. Kevin also has a podcast. It's called Compounding with Kevin Dahlstrom and features the most interesting people you've never heard of. People who don't typically do podcasts because they're too busy living an incredible life. Let's hear more about Kevin's podcast.
2: The the idea behind my podcast is, you know, I bring on people who uh, I believe are the best in their fields. And some of these people are really well known. Some of them are not so well known. But uh, I take very much of a quality over quantity approach. So I've been doing this podcast now over a year, and we've only published seven episodes. Carissa Moore, the women's surfing gold medalist, was the latest and and maybe my favorite um, guest, but. When I talk to Carissa or when I talk to someone who's built a billion-dollar private equity fund or when I talk to um, Alex Bogusky, who's a legend in the advertising industry, we don't talk about business at all, right? All I'm interested in is what lessons have you learned over time and what things have you learned that the rest of us can apply in our daily lives to perform better at whatever it is we want to do, to build a great life, to perform better. And Carissa Moore was a great example because she's undoubtedly... The best in her sport, uh, if not one of the best of all time across any sport. Her achievements speak for themselves. Uh, but what stands out about her to me is that she's done something that very few CEOs, very few celebrities, very few athletes have done, which is she's become the best while building um, a great life, right? A great life full of family and alo- she's from Hawaii, so full of aloha and incredible experiences. Um, and and the best example of that is um the thing that stood out to me from our from our interview was she was at in 2018 she was struggling she was not winning ter- tournaments she wasn't even finding fulfillment in the sport anymore and she went to her dad who was her coach and she said i don't know what to do should i just quit am i done should i retire and um you know, most coaches would say, "No, we're gonna we're gonna rework your training pr- program. We're gonna double down on weight training. We're gonna hit the water twice as much." You know, here's your training plan. Instead, her dad said, um, "Why don't you ground yourself in giving back and then see where that takes you?" That gives me chills too. Um, and so she founded her her charitable foundation called More Aloha, which is about introducing the sport of surfing to young girls, underprivileged girls. And, um, the rest is history. She came back, won five world championships and a gold medal.
0: Big thank you to Kevin for being on the show. Big thank you for, to you, listener, for getting this far and listening. Um, I'm putting up with my horrible, whiny, nasal voice.
1: I think it's quite
0: sexy. <laughs> don't, don't make me laugh. I just got, I lodged you to a coughing fit, which you've had to cut, we've had to cut out. I don't know how much <laughs> of it I can cut out. All the links will be in the show notes. We'll be back next week with a very special episode on diversity in the workplace with the incredible Sonia Thompson from Inclusion Marketing. Uh, she is our sister show on the Hobspot Podcast Network. And Leanne, you've got a special guest too.
1: Yes, I had an awesome conversation with Catherine Garrett, former head of inclusion at Sky and author of the recently released book, Conscious Inclusion, which I, would, I was asking Catherine about this, the figures are out next month, but if it is not in the best-selling category, I will be shocked and appalled. I'll be writing a very strongly worded letter to her publisher.
0: And to Jeff Bezos.
1: And Jeff. Oh, don't get me started. On, I've not got Jeff. time for Jeff right sort now. Sort
0: your life out, Jeff. Right, we'll see you next week.
1: Bye. Bye-bye.
3: <laughs>